morning we will be in 1 Peter, 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, and concentrating in verses 3 through 5, we will be um, talking today through this passage and, and talking about the resurrection of Christ and what it means. Uh, so good, so good today on this day, even though it's a little different than usual to remind ourselves uh, just as we should and do every Lord's Day, um, but especially today, that we serve a risen Savior. And we, can, we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our salvation is secure, our inheritance is guaranteed because of the historical fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. What a, what a wonderful truth, and it is a truth that you need to be filtering all of your thinking regarding the current world situation through. Because the fact is that this is most likely the most odd Resurrection Sunday that any of us have ever experienced. And if we're not careful, that that power, that victory that the empty tomb represents can be clouded by the gloom of, of present circumstances. Now, maybe more than ever, we need to remind ourselves of the incomprehensible worth of the salvation that was made possible through the cross of Christ, through his burial and resurrection from the dead. We need to remember, we need to meditate on the amazing inheritance that God has given to us in his mercy when he caused us to be born again. Because it is, as I look out over mostly empty chairs here, it is, uh, it is possible uh, to get discouraged, to be tempted, to start thinking in a more temporal sort of way. It can be harder to see the victory, harder to see the resurrection power that's why Travis's message on Friday night was so important. If you haven't been able to listen to it, you must, you must. Because it helps us to think about what God might be doing through this time. Because, because the church being kept from gathering together on the day where we are to glory in the victory of Jesus Christ over death, not being able to gather together on that day just has a a bad feeling to it because this, this room should not be this empty on a Lord's Day until Christ returns. But for the most part, I've been, I've been really encouraged as I've talked to many of you. It is a strong testimony, I think, about our church that it doesn't seem like the, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of fear and anxiety um, that, that seems to be um, infiltrating the world, that, that it doesn't seem to hold the same power over our church right now. And we're so thankful. I've been so thankful to see that. It's been such a blessing as one of the elders here to, to see you all during this time of, of what really is a, a, a time of light momentary affliction, to see our church taking refuge in that which is certain, to see your faith shine like pure gold, so thankful for this. But even so, I, I want to uh, make sure that we realize that as time goes on in this, during this time, the pressure maybe will begin to rise. Um, and maybe it is in some of you, maybe in, in your hearts underneath. Maybe some of you have or may lose jobs. Some may lose loved ones. And, and the dependence upon God will need to be even more evident. That is why this morning we want to spend time talking about the all-surpassing greatness of just what it is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has done for us. The living hope and the inheritance that we have been graciously given by our kind Heavenly Father. Because if we truly understand this, as we continually remind ourselves of what has taken place in us, what we have been given uh, what we have been given through the resurrection of Christ, then, then no virus, no worldwide pandemic, even one that may come one day that's far greater than what we're seeing right now, will have any kind of real effect on us. We want our church, we want to see this church be able to handle not only this crisis, but even far greater 
crises and trials in such a way that your brothers and sisters are encouraged and the unbelievers and the false believers are baffled by, as Peter says later in this chapter, in this book, the hope that is in you. And the best way to do this is to do a few things. Uh, one, to do a little of what Travis did for us and helped us with on Friday night by reminding us of God's good and sovereign pr- plan in all of this and calling our attention to all of the, the great Uh, the needed benefits that could come from this and should inform the way that we are praying through this. So, So by doing that and by doing what we see Peter doing here for his readers, right here at the beginning of this epistle, calling our attention to the wonder that is the amazing gift that has been given to us in our new birth. The unbelievable hope and inheritance that we have because God, in His mercy, has caused us to be born again. These are the truths that we should be thinking about. We should be thinking about on Resurrection Sunday. A lot of times we see uh, memes on, on, on Facebook, on the internet, and we hear t- people talk about the resurrection as if the only value of it is that it proves that our Savior has power over death and that He lives and that makes Him better than every other religion's saviors because Buddha and Mohammed are dead and they stay dead. But since Jesus lives, that proves that our faith is better than all other faiths. And that is true and praise God for that. And there's a a great point to be made there. The point of the resurrection, though, is not merely for us to justify that we're on the right team. It is through the resurrection that he has, that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's not merely the demonstration that our Lord is who he claimed to be, that he is God in human flesh and therefore has sovereign power over death and hell, though it is that, It's not only that, we also glory in the resurrection of Christ because of the amazing work that it accomplishes in us and that it guarantees for us. So read with me 1 Peter 1, verses 3-5. through It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and then to an inheritance. If it were not for these effects of the resurrection upon us, then it would be of little comfort to know that Jesus Christ proved himself to be God by rising from the dead. What makes this a joy, what makes this a joyful day, is that the amazing, this amazing miracle is one that we get to share in. Jesus' victory over death is the guarantee of the promised inheritance we receive when God causes us to be born again. So today, what we are going to do is we are just going to behold the wonder of the new birth. We're going to do that together. We're going to just think about what it means to be born again, why the resurrection matters so much for each one of us. What we are going to do is we're going to be encouraged. We're going to be encouraged to live with joy and hope during even the most severe of trials because what we have received in our new lives in Christ is so glorious that no earthly trial should have any power over us. Every earthly trial becomes inconsequential and consequential when we rightly understand what it means to be born again. We're going to see that through these four points. These four points. 
This will be your outline today. Number one, the superiority of the new birth. Number two, the expectancy of the new birth. Number three, the quality of the new birth. Number four, the final reality of the new birth. So the superiority, the expectancy, the quality, the final reality. And I'm, I'm going to assume that you have a general idea of what I mean by the new birth or to be born again. I'll quickly kind of maybe talk about it here. It is, it is the doctrine of regeneration. Being born again is not what happens when you repent of your sins and put your trust in Christ. Rather, you are able to put your trust in Christ because you are born again, when He has regenerated you. Now, both of these things, they happen almost simultaneously, but you cannot place your trust in Christ unless you have been regenerated. It's the regenerating act of God that allows you to repent of your sins and put your trust in Him. Before regeneration, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no ability to turn to Christ. It's what we call total depravity. If there were a part of you that were able to, to pick yourself up and, and begin to turn to Christ on your own, then you would not be totally depraved. You would only be mostly depraved. You must be regenerated. You must be born again in order for your eyes to truly be open to your sin and the, the beauty of Christ to repent and believe the gospel. So what God does at the new birth is, is to give you a new heart of flesh rather than one of stone. He gives you a new mind. He gives you new affections. You love God. You love that which is good instead of your sin which you now hate. None of that can happen. None of that can happen to one who is dead in their sins, who is blind, who still has the, the veil that remains over their face and a nature which causes them to only love and serve themselves and sin. God must act. And that is exactly what we see in this passage. He has caused you. Look at those words. He has caused us to be born again. And that's, that's consistent with what Jesus taught Nicodemus in John 3. In John 3, 3 through 8, Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus there is telling Nicodemus that this must happen to you in order to see the kingdom. It must happen. And, and he doesn't tell him how to do it. He tells him how it happens. He compares it to the wind. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It is a work of God alone. We see this truth also now reflected here in Peter, who no doubt learned it from Jesus. He's agreeing and saying that this is something that God has caused in you. So, with that brief reminder of what the new birth is, let's, let's get into our outline and examine these four truths about the new birth. These truths that when understood, when meditated on, will keep us from ever allowing any trial to have any kind of power over our heart or attitude. So the first point, the superiority of the new birth. Superiority of the new birth. To understand this point, we need to have a little better understanding of what's going on uh, with these people that Peter is writing to. Peter's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers in various areas of, of Roman control, of the Roman-controlled world. And what is clear from the letter when you read it in, in its entirety is that these believers are suffering. They are, they're suffering. In fact, 
because of, of how much this letter speaks to suffering and to endurance and persecution, this, this letter is often a, a favorite and one of the most quickly translated of the books of the Bible in, in uh, areas of Muslim-controlled Indonesia when people come to Christ there. They need to hear these words immediately. Well, there is speculation about exactly what type of suffering the recipients of this letter were under. What is clear is that it is directly related to the fact that they were Christians. That means it is probably a little more severe. The suffering that these Christians are undergoing is probably a little more severe than what we are dealing with right now, as we are not being specifically targeted to drastically change our lifestyles or to to not gather together or to to, that, that we have to stay at home uh, because of the fact that we are Christians. Not to say that that won't happen someday, but those that Peter is writing to are undergoing some sort of severe trial and suffering uh, that, that we haven't dealt with yet, that type of suffering. And it's at least bad enough. It's at least a bad enough suffering, a bad enough trial that he has to remind them in chapter 3 of all of these things. He has to remind them that they can't repay evil for evil that they need to bless those who persecute them. He expects them to be dealing with with something that is severe enough that the outsiders need to be surprised that they're still able to have joy. He also uh, he ha- he has to comfort them by by also in chapter 3 by reminding them of the sufferings of Christ. So it seems like the temptation for these Christians might have been to find their identity in their suffering and in what is being kept from them or the wrong way that they have been treated. That's what seems like is going on by, by how Peter is addressing them. That is, that is certainly the temptation of many right now. And that temptation is just going to grow. The, the news paints this picture of everything in regard to the coronavirus. Everything is in that context. You can't watch a news story, not even the sports, without it being in the context of what the coronavirus is doing. Yesterday, I went to King Supers early in the morning. And it was the first time I'd really seen some of this effect. It hasn't been like this every time I've been to the store, but yesterday was different. I accidentally got there uh, before they opened with their new hours, their new later hours, and I find my, found myself having to get in one of uh, two long lines in front of the, the doors that went in both directions. I had to go stand there. We were all about six feet apart from one another. In this long line, there was no talking. There's not, it's not like any time you've ever been in a crowd. There's not that white noise of voices you usually hear when you're in long lines in a crowd at like a sporting event or something else. There were no children anywhere. Maybe, maybe it's not always like this, and this was because maybe this is because all the paranoid people go shopping early in the morning. But on the faces of everyone, on the faces of everyone who wasn't wearing a mask, there was either frustration or fear, confusion. Finally, after a while, an employee came and he opened the door. And, and just we all just silently, in this organized fashion, walked in a, a you know, six-foot perforated line as he counted each one of us so that he could make sure he stopped us when we reached the point of maximum occupancy in the store, which was much smaller than it used to be. I just, I just can't imagine what anyone would have thought of this scene if they could have had a picture of this crowd two months ago. Like some scene from one of those dystopian movies. See it everywhere right now. The TV shows, comedians, news anchors, they all have this same kind of, we just, we just got to get through this type of attitude. It's this, this situation we're going through is informing everything. There's this palpable, want to believe the best, but still pretty worried and unsure kind of feeling that we see everywhere. And I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, and, and it seems to be the case, that this hasn't affected uh, most of you 
to the same degree. But as it goes on, it could become even uh, more difficult. And there will be certainly coming in our future trials more severe than this, in which these truths need to be thought through. But as we look at this passage, we need to understand that whatever suffering that the original recipients of 1 Peter were dealing with is probably a little worse than what we're going through now. And based on the rest of this letter, it was clearly something that was kind of defining their existence. And Peter, knowing that whatever he says to them is going to be filtered through that reality of their suffering, because, because that's what's primary in their existence right now. He does something here that we might find unusual. Right, so if I, if I knew that you had just been diagnosed with some awful disease and that it was really weighing on your mind, and right after I greet you, I am probably going to say something like, I'm so sorry to hear about what you're going through. Um, and I'm probably going to let you talk about that for a little while if you want. We'll pray about that specific thing together. But look what Peter does here. Knowing that they are suffering, that this is what is primary in their hearts and what's going on in their minds and what they're thinking about, Peter comes right out of the gate with a doxology. Look at verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Knowing, Knowing that they are hurting, and in going through a trial that they're having a, a difficult time trying to deal with, that's what he says. That, that seems off and maybe even a little crazy at first, but it is not. But what if I would have done that yesterday at King Supers? What if I would have walked into that silent crowd and shouted, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Would have most likely had no effect. They would look at me like I was crazy, possibly giving me more than the suggested six feet of distance, even though what I said was true. Even though what I said is true. And the reason why, the reason why is that they don't have any common point of reference for that statement. In their heads, it would be, what does that have to do with this COVID-19 situation we're all dealing with? How does, how does that relate? To them, that declaration would have nothing to do with their situation. But what if I would have walked into the crowd and shouted out, it's over, guys, on the news everywhere, the news is out, they just found the cure for COVID-19, and it's an easy one, and we already have it in ample supply, this is all going to be done in less than a week. Now, now suddenly, if, if what I said is true, it matters a great deal. And they're excitedly and they're expectantly on their phones because this has everything to do with what the, that which has been dominating their thinking for weeks now. So, the only reason that we would think that bursting forth in praise is odd is if we think that Peter is completely and insensitively overlooking the pain and suffering of these poor, persecuted Christians. And indeed, maybe some of them might be thinking that. In the same way that we might act or think when it looks like, or we, we infer that an older or more mature Christian is completely overlooking our trials and our suffering and going you know, straight to the spiritual. But Peter here, is completely in his right mind. He knows ex- exactly what he's doing, and he gets right into the most important thing that these believers need to be focusing on right now. So He'll eventually get down to some of the more practical aspects of their suffering, but the only way that they are going to hear any of that rightly, the only way that any of that is going to, is going to strike the right chord with them is to have what is most important at the forefront of their minds and hearts going into that chapter. 
None of his practical help in chapter 3 is going to really help unless underneath it all they are rejoicing in their salvation. If, if this isn't primary, if they are in the end in need of more than this truth to lift them out of their suffering, then there is nothing he will be able to say that will help them. So, while walking into the crowd at King Supers and loudly proclaiming, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, that would probably have no real effect because it doesn't pertain to what that crowd is concerned about and it is truth that really means nothing to them. If I were to go to a group of Christians who were struggling with maybe the fear of the coronavirus or the economic effects of the virus or, or, or any other trial or any other point of suffering, no matter what it might be. And I was to say to them, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In that case, I have just spoken the most profound, most important thing I could say to you in your situation, no matter what it is. They've just been reminded of a truth that does far more than just help you in your suffering. It reminds us that in light of such marvelous truth, in light of the very, the very best news that we could ever hear, the truth that God has caused us to be born again. And in light of this, why would I ever be tempted to identify with whatever the cause of my suffering is? Why would, why would that ever become so important to me that it would control my thinking and determine my actions? In light of the truth that God has caused me to be born again, how is that relevant? The promise and the joy of the new birth and everything that it entails is so superior to any other issue that you might ever deal with, that if, if we could ever comprehend it to its fullest, if we could actually comprehend it to its fullest, we, we would not even be able to suffer anymore. It is the most important thing to remember in all suffering and in every situation in life. Don't hear me wrong. It's not because of the fact that you are born, that, that you are born again guarantees that you'll have you know, victory in life's circumstances. And not because it means that, that he's going to heal all your diseases. And not because it is the key that unlocks financial prosperity and gives you access to your best life now. But because by it, you will be able to accurately assess just how severe any trial actually is. Just how bad that pain and suffering really is in light of the awesome thing that God has done for you and causing you to be born again. And it begins to look more and more like despairing over losing a penny while you're on the way to the bank to deposit a gift of a million dollars you just received. So, we see the superiority of our new birth over everything else that could possibly come into our lives, everything that would cause us worry and distress. And, that, and now as we get into the next few points, we will see just why this is the case, why it is so glorious, why it is, why it is worth just giving yourself to thinking about that and not worrying about other things. The second point, the expectancy of the new birth. Expectancy of the new birth. I'm referring to what we can expect it to produce in us. What we can expect the new birth to produce in us, namely, a living hope. A living hope, and we see that again in verse 3, after he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because we have been born again, we have a hope 
that this world knows nothing of. We have a hope that is alive. This doesn't mean that it's growing and, and getting bigger, not that kind of life. It means, that, it means that it's not a dead hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not a hope that is based on, 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 on nothing, like the hope of the world, not a hope based on material things. Contrary to those who are constantly tormented, whether they admit it or not, about what the purpose in their life might be, and at a time like this, they're asking those questions even more. And then if they decide that they, they do have some sort of purpose in life, they're confused about what foundation do they actually have to establish that, that that's a true purpose if they're just going to reject the God of the Bible. There, there are so many who, who, who live in that torment in their mind, and there are so many who live in constant fear of death or just do everything that they can to try and avoid thinking or talking about death. And especially now, we are seeing so many whose hope is dependent on circumstances, who are only keeping themselves from slipping into madness because they're able to tell themselves that it will all go back to normal someday. Their hope is getting back into the normal way that they worshipped materialism and comfort. getting those things back, things that must one day be taken from them at some point anyway. We see people placing all of their hope in all kinds of, in the government, in the government's recommendations, in the, go, in the government to provide for them, people, people hoping that their, their youth or their health is going is to cover for them so they don't really need to be afraid. People hoping in the, the social distance thing, that that's, that's the answer, that's the key. People hoping in all of these different um, uh, uh, treatments that are out there, experimental treatments. Hope that there won't be another worldwide epidemic like this ever again. None of these are a living hope. It's a world's hope, a fool's hope. None of it's based on promises. It's only all based on an uncertain hope, a desire for things to work. That's all it really is, not biblical hope, just a desire that things will end up working out okay. There's there's nothing to look to that would give them any kind of confidence that those things are going to happen the way they want. It's all vain. It's all dead hope. Even if any of those things should serve them and fulfill them for a while, for a little while, every one of them will still fail them in the end. One day what they live for, that which gives them their false joy and security will be taken from them, either in this life or in death, and they'll be left with nothing. We have a living hope certain hope, because it's not based on futile things, but on the omnipotent power of God, which raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Our certain future is based on a certain past. Christ has risen from the dead. Our hope is certain. Hebrews 11.1 describes faith as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And this conviction for the future comes from the certainty of what we have already seen God do for us in Christ. And since He has done this, we can be confident that He will bring about every other promise that's associated with being born again. Everything we see in this passage and all over the Bible about what it means to be born again. That's exactly what what Paul is referring to in Romans 8.32. And he says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? The, the logic is that God has done the most difficult thing when it comes to causing us to be born again. And that he put his son to death to take away the penalty of sins. And then 
raised him from the dead. If he has already done the most difficult thing of putting his son to death, and the seemingly impossible thing of raising him from the dead, and and this is what he had to do in order for him to cause us to be born again and draw us to himself, then we can be 100% confident that every other promise associated with our new birth is as good as done. This is why we will have no fear, no matter what kind of things happen in this world. No matter how many pandemics or economic shutdowns happen, we have a living hope, a living hope that transcends the material world, and it is guaranteed because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. So we are born again to a living hope, and as we look on, to an inheritance, to an inheritance that comes with being born again. We see in verse 4, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our third point. Third point, the quality of the new birth. The quality of the new birth. What, what the new birth is made of, the characteristics of it. An inheritance, if you know, is, is, a, is the property or wealth that you receive simply because you're part of a certain family. The fact that you are in the family is what entitles you to that inheritance. The idea of receiving an inheritance, if you think about who's writing this, would probably be quite appealing for Peter. Remember, he's the one who, uh, the one of the, one of those disciples who left behind what was most likely a, a successful fishing business. He gave up any financial security in order to follow Jesus. That's probably also going to be appealing for Peter's audience, his, the, the readers of this letter, that many of them have been displaced from their homeland, meaning they've been cut off from a lot of their opportunities for inheritance and wealth. In addition, the changing social status of becoming a Christian and being associated with Christ would also mean that things were probably going to be more financially difficult for them. And this current crisis that we're in is also displaying to us the inability to have any kind of confidence in in real financial stability. Right? Millions of people have lost their jobs over the last few weeks. Others are losing retirement funds as the economy continues to shut down. But even those who come out of this relatively unscathed financially will still only have a perishable inheritance that will do them no good when they are gone. Successfully navigating this financial crisis might let you feel secure, but you're really only delaying the day that these things will finally let you down. It's a matter of when, not if. The inheritance that comes with the new birth is greater in every possible way. And here Peter gives four terms that demonstrate the superior quality of this amazing inheritance. First, if you look at verse 4, you see that it is imperishable. It's imperishable. The word there literally means that it is something that is is unaffected by death and destruction. While so many worry and clamor about the types of things that they are losing or or that they might end up losing as a result of, of, of a crisis, they're really just giving examples of a bunch of different things that they are going to lose at some point anyway. All of the time and effort put into acquiring Certain things that provide security and comfort are only things that will be lost one day. You're spending it, it all to seek security and comfort for this brief life. And it is only a matter of when you lose it. Within the next year or the next several decades, it really doesn't matter in light of eternity. Yet loss of this security is what causes such stress and panic and so many, but our inheritance is imperishable. Imperishable. Not subject to any of that. Second, we see that it is undefiled. It says undefiled. Imperishable, 
undefiled. This has to do with with moral purity. Our eternal inheritance is unstained by sin and evil. Everything in this world, everything in this world is stained, is marked by the curse of sin. This is a reminder. This is a reminder that there is a day coming when we will finally be free from every single corrupting influence of sin. We'll no longer have any part of us. That's what we've so desired ever since the moment of regeneration, the moment that God caused us to be born again. And he gave us a a new nature. We have from that moment hated the sin that still clings to us and infects the things we do and say. Our regeneration has given us hearts that hate sin and want nothing to do with it anymore. And, And in eternity, we will finally have this this great gift that we've always longed for, freedom from sin. And not just freedom from the sin within us, but, but the sin that's all around us. We will have a flawless, perfect inheritance in, in, in Christ. And that means that, that even that which will, uh, that will surround us throughout all of eternity will be undefiled. As, as Travis on Friday night, as he went through that that long list of wicked vices that so aptly describe our country. Didn't you just want out of here? You want out of all of it to never have to hear news of another abortion or another uh, divorce or adultery or, or, or to hear the latest way that the culture has decided to adapt sin and, and glorify it in TV and movies. Every wicked abomination that sets itself up against the holiness of our great God, yet it is embraced by this godless culture that we live in. One day we'll be free of it. Isn't that what we long for? That eternal reward of a life with Christ, with with not not a shred of sin clinging to us or anywhere to be found. To finally be able to see and understand the fullness of what our relationship with Christ and with each other should actually look like as we spend eternity in paradise free from every aspect of sin. It's undefiled. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. Next, number three, it's unfading. It's unfading. If you look down at your text, you see the word unfading, that our inheritance is unfading. This is a word meant to remind us of things, um, that, things like flowers as they kind of slowly wither and die. It's played against that picture. Peter here is pointing out that this inheritance will never be subject to the effects of time. It will never lose its majesty, its, its glory. We will never even begin to use it up. Get bored with it. During this unique moment that we may live in now, many Americans are able to see for the first time in their lives that all that they put their hope in here on this earth are things that are exhaustible. They are finite. They can be used up. They're not guaranteed. In my life, people have never had a time where they could not find something as basic as toilet paper or a particular type of food after visiting more than one store. There are testimonies I've heard of grocery store managers across this country as they, as they speak of customers who have verbally let them have it because they are not able to find what they want and they haven't been able to for several days and therefore they've arrived at the conclusion that this manager doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know how to run a store. These stories indicate just how unwilling this culture is to accept the fact that all of their hope is in that which can easily be used up. The answer, there simply is none left, is, is an answer that will not be tolerated. And it, and, and it would seem they can't even understand it. They can't even process that information. It's amazing to hear some of this stuff. And now, finally... 
if even just for a brief moment, and and even though it's just a, a small fraction of the resources that we have come to take for granted, we are able to see in the temporary loss of just a few of these things, just how little this culture ever considers the fact that all earthly comforts are temporal and fading and under the dominion, under the rule of time. But the inheritance of those who have been born again is under no such rule. It is eternal. It is unfading. And think, of, think of some of the things that you've looked forward to the most in your whole life and then how the experience begins to dull and be less exciting as it goes on. Like as, as a kid going to Disneyland, the first moment they're in there just full of joy and excitement, but by the end of the day, let alone a few days, they find things to complain about. Rides that aren't as fun the second or third or fourth time. Right, aren't we always saying or thinking things about how we wish we could see, see that side or experience that experience for the first time again? Because you, never, you can never replicate that joy that you had that first time. Those are all signs that point us to the fact that everything that brings us joy and happiness here is under the rule of time. And no matter how great it is, it fades slowly loses its excitement. The joy we had in it begins to slowly pass. But brothers and sisters, that will not be our eternal experience. Our infinite, eternal God gives us an inheritance unlike anything we could possibly imagine. We can't even comprehend it in our little created minds where our enjoyment of Him will remain inexpressible and new every moment throughout all of eternity. That's the unfading inheritance that we have. Fourth, we see that it's secure. So it's, it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Kept in heaven for you. It is, so fourth, it is secure. It's secure because look what it says there. It says, kept in heaven for you. Once God has caused us to be born again. He doesn't leave the inheritance in our fallible control or the control of anyone else. How how wonderful it is to think about that in times like these. We see so many people consumed with fear and worry that their retirement's not secure, their present income level is not secure. How many people were going to jobs just a few months ago, taking them so much for granted that they actually complained about their boss or their workload or their coworkers, never realizing that in just a couple of months, what they did for a living would be deemed non-essential and have all that security taken away. What happens if the banks fail again in this country and there's no money in the government to bail them out? How many people just won't be able to, to come to terms with the fact that, that they've placed what they believed to be their own money somewhere and now it's gone and they didn't get a say in it? The absolute inability of any earthly institution to really guarantee the security of anything is just impossible for many to come to terms with That's why so many people, always in a panic, they grab all of their possessions that they can and they put them in their own control as much as possible. But but that doesn't make them secure either. Praise God. Praise God that He doesn't promise us this inheritance when we are born again and then leave it in our control. Because if this precious gift were left up to us to hang on to, we would lose it like that. Not only that, but we would live our lives and wouldn't we? We'd live our lives in constant terror that we were going to lose it or that we had lost it. And, and, and if, if someone gave you, I mean, just think of that. If someone gave you the most precious gift imaginable and then told you that, that for it to actually have any benefit to you, then you still need to be holding on to it when you die, you would live your life in constant anxiety about losing it. But praise God for those words we see here, kept in heaven for you. He is doing the keeping 
the one who punished Christ in your place, and then in power raised him from the dead, is right now sovereignly controlling all things to bring history to the end that he planned before the foundations of the earth. And he is the only one, the only one we would ever want to keep secure that precious inheritance that he has given to us. It's kept in heaven, right? What Jesus said, where moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. So as we look around and maybe see these temporal things being taken away one way or another, know this, be convinced of this, that which is of true value, that which is of true importance, that which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is completely secure. And it's just waiting for us until the day that God chooses to bring us into it finally. Which brings us to our final point, the fourth point, the final reality of the new birth. Final reality of the new birth. So as we read on in verse 5, an inheritance that is in the end of verse 4, an inheritance that, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The salvation that Peter is referring to here is our ultimate salvation pointing to the truth that that we are saved as a result of the new birth. We are saved as a result of the new birth, but it is a process. You have been saved through justification and through imputation. You are being saved in your sanctification, and you will one day be ultimately saved in your glorification when either at your death or in his return you are freed from sin and all its effects and ultimately and finally transformed into his likeness. In the last time, all believers, those who have died and those who remain, will be glorified and given transformed bodies fit for eternity with God. Notice in this verse that it says that this salvation is ready. It's ready. It was made ready at the resurrection of Christ. It is sure, and it is waiting for us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ makes this a certain reality. A certain reality, and this verse shows us that it is God who is guarding us and guiding us and leading us and bringing us to that day. God's power guards us through faith. How how great is the blessing of this new birth. God securely holds the inheritance that he has purchased for us and he is the one who will bring it to us in in, in completion, in his timing. Peter wants these suffering Christians to see and understand this, to know this. He wants them to see this as certain reality, to be ready, to be anticipating that day certain of its coming. But that for now, there's just a little more they need to do first. There's a little more in life they need to go through. But, but God's power is keeping it for them. And it's secure. He's keeping them until that point when he desires to bring them into it. If you can, turn to 2 Timothy 4.18. Turn to 2 Timothy 4.18. I guess you can pause it if you want. 2 Timothy 4.18, this is the Apostle Paul speaking towards the end of his life. Towards the end of his life, the last bit of instruction before he gets into his final greetings and his chronologically last letter he wrote, he says this, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. This is Paul right before he dies. This is how he is seeing things. He understands that rescue from every evil deed clearly does not mean success and comfort in this life. He is in prison. 
And he recognizes that being rescued does not mean his life gets back to normal. He understands death is being brought safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's how he sees death. He sees his life here on earth is being preserved to do all that he has been given to do, and during that time being guarded by God's power through faith, and then to be safely brought into the inheritance that is waiting for him through death. And we typically think of safely or safe as being kept as far from death as possible. But Paul sees it eternal lives as being guided safely into the culmination of his new birth. These are the glorious, all-surpassing truths that are true of all those whom God has caused to be born again. You have been born again. There is nothing of eternal value that you now lack. This truth is superior to any other possible good that you could ever hope for or imagine, and it's greater in every possible way. You've been born again to a living hope made certain through the resurrection. You have been given an inheritance of infinite value that cannot be taken away by physical death and, in fact, is actually only served by death. It's untouched by sin or any sort of defilement. It's unfading. It's completely outside the rule of time. It's never depreciating. And it's secured by the omnipotent, bringing life from death power of God our Father. And the culmination of all of these promises is just as certain as if it were right in front of us. Just as certain as if it were right in front of us just a matter of waiting. These things are a certainty for every believer, for each one who has experienced the reality of being born again. But they mean nothing to those of you out there who may be watching, who have never turned from your sin and placed your trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are things that we've been talking about here. This inheritance are things you have no part in. And it is indeed true that the best that you can hope for in your situation is a few more meager years or decades hoping to go to the store or the bank and find the things that will allow you to pursue comfort a little while longer. If you are one who has never placed your trust in Christ, maybe, maybe you thought you had, but your inability to cope with suffering and trials, maybe this present situation has revealed to you that what is truly important to you is that which you are actually living for that gives you security in the here and now. If that is you, then right now, Appeal to God. He is merciful. Pray that you would see your sin for what it is. It's not your freedom to pursue your own version of happiness. There's rebellion against a holy God. God who has created you and everything else and has told us, commanded us how we are to live in his creation. Your sin is rebellion. You're rebelling with your finite, created mind against the wise, loving rule of an all-powerful God and a just judge. He is just, and therefore all sin, all evil, all rebellion must be, must be justly punished. And, and sin against an infinite and eternal God demands an infinite punishment. This is why hell exists. It is the place where rebellion against this God can, can justly be paid through eternal punishment. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you and I 
never could. And then he went to the cross and he took upon himself the eternal punishment that you were to pay in hell, that we deserved. And because he's truly man, he's able to take our place. And because he's truly God, he's able to take the punishment for all of those who would put their trust in him. He's able to take it all upon himself, the wrath of God in that moment. Now if you would turn from your sins and see them as the disgusting rebellion against a good and holy God that they are. Place your trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You'll be saved. The just wrath of God that was due to you for all your sins will be seen as paid in full on the cross and the righteous life of Christ will be credited to your account. And it will be seen that the the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has transformed your spiritual deadness into eternal life. It will be seen that that has been made true in you. And all of the promises of the new birth that we've been talking about today, they will all now belong to you as well. And by the grace of God, as the the rest of the world longs to get back to normal, you will never have to live under the curse of being normal again. Abundant life, a living hope, a certain inheritance will belong to you as you become an adopted child of the living God and are able to call him Father, just as Jesus was able to. Oh, friend, turn, fall to your knees, confess your sin, and put your trust in Christ. And to my brothers and sisters who are in Christ, do these verses from First Peter express your heart? In the midst of this trial? Is this how we're thinking about trials, circumstances, suffering, any of that? The degree to which you are in distress, the degree to which you are fearful and worried about the future, that your attitude may have sunk into sadness and despair, that's the degree to which we are forgetting, which we are beginning to Make the temporal stuff of this world cloud the glory of the superior promises that we've been given in the gift of being born again. The all-surpassing wonderful promises that, that far outweigh any light momentary affliction that we can experience here. Promises that have been guaranteed and made secure by the event that we remember this day, the resurrection of our Savior, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right now, if if, if that is happening, if you've found yourself worrying or you're, you're seeing yourself as distracted by news and hopelessness, confusion that you see everywhere, that's everywhere in our culture right now, when you find yourself tempted for just a moment to think much of your trials, no matter how severe you might believe them to be, any trials at all, no matter how severe you think they are or how severe other people might be telling you they are, ju- let me just say this to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, thank you for these truths. Oh, we thank you so much for what you have revealed here. To be able to see Peter expressing to those who are suffering those who are going through a trial, what they absolutely need to hear the most and be thinking about the most. God, I pray that the glorious truth 
of what we've been given because you have made us to be born again, that that would drown out the loud cries in the world right now. You would help us to be to, to live this out in front of our neighbors. That they would be, not just see the hope that we have, but be overwhelmed by it. And that it would be clearly evident to all that, that's, that our hope is nothing to do with the same stuff that they're seeing. It's an eternal hope and imperishable, undefiled, unfading one, kept secure for us. Father, and anyone who's listening or watching right now who doesn't understand these things, who is realizing that they have no part in this, who has been destroyed in their spirit by what they see going on, God, I pray you would open their eyes, open their hearts to see their sin for what it is, to see the holy God for who he is, to see their desperate need for the Savior you've provided in Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for his resurrection. And we are so thankful that you have made us partakers in it. In Jesus' name, amen.